<laughs> I we have the same discussion every single semester because what happens is we we hit the point of the semester where we've talked about everything that we want to talk about and we're scraping the barrel and then you ask me like what are you talking about in class and I say topic X and you you sigh you say ah oh. your class I just do not like any of the topics that you talk about in your class well it's good that you don't have to take my class Jeff you know it's it's great lots of people take teach government two hundred four you can take it with somebody else you know but I I like terrorism. I don't like terrorism. I like talking about terrorism and thinking about theories of terrorism. And I also, I think genocide is an important topic. It's not, it's not fun to discuss, but it's important. No, I agree. I agree. It's important. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And I'm joined today, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How about that election last night? I was telling my uh, my prediction class today i i um got an email this morning from predicted.org asking you know would i like a direct deposit or would i like a giant <laughs> giant duffel bag of cash delivered directly to my door with postmates so you did well you did well huh oh man the uh Cleaned up. I, I i have a theory i talked about this in my class like about what's going on on predicted which is that there are uh partisans who are not seen clearly, right? And and this is why you could still make a lot of money on Predict It after the election in 2020, because people were so convinced on this website that there was voter fraud and everything would be overturned, that they like just hung in there. So you could still, you, there was still money to be made because of uh, uh, election deniers. And so this, I just think this, the sample for this website in particular is just very... Um, very partisan and very motivated by, uh, like either a particular media window or like you know their their beliefs about what's going to happen are kind of unaffected by polling or or uh, you know any kind of estimate that's out there. And so when when you look at most prediction markets, they follow pretty closely five thirty eight or some other poll aggregation site because that everyone's using the same raw material to come to their judgments, but not predicted. Predicted is like way out on their own doing their own thing and so if you it doesn't mean they're going to be wrong of course <laughs> so like sometimes the 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 crazy people are right by accident but uh in this case like it's a good, it's a good way to bet right is that they're not going to be right by accident forever and in this case um the the percentages the implied probable probability assessments in the predicted markets were way off from the at least the conventional wisdom and it turned out the conventional wisdom was pretty close to right in this case but Okay, I, well, I don't understand something. Like, shouldn't shouldn't the market? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. The whole point I mean, of these things, right, is that the market fixes that. And right. I, I'm missing something here. Yeah. Like, well, isn't it supposed to be the case that like that doesn't happen because yeah. rational people show up and they're like, "Ooh, I'm like Jeff Kaplow. I'm going to take advantage of this situation." And like a bunch of Jeff Kaplow's show up, and then like everything kind of evens out, right? Exactly. And so what happens? Is, so in this case, the problem is that predicted is not a uh, fully liquid, unconstrained market. And um, there are several restrictions, including on the number of people that can be involved in each market and wow. on the amount of money you can put in, in each market. And it's capped fairly low, which means that even with my millions from William & Mary for my, my signing bonus... You do very well. Uh, ...that I, 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 like can't, I can't affect the price because I'm limited to how much I can, I can buy. Um, and so you, you, know, you go into these markets all in, and then I'm like, well, is it ethical for me to create an account for, for my wife? 
Uh, to, to sure. like, she, if her if her belief is to like sure, double the amount, right? But that would have to be without telling her because there's no way she would go along with this idea. Um, so you know, just to like double the amount of money that I am betting on uh, the New York governor, um, you know, which <laughs> which you know, this is the only market out there that had the New York governor right. losing going into right. election day, and and uh, five thirty eight has it as like a ninety eight percent chance, uh, and this would be the biggest miss by uh, five thirty eight like in the history of elections. So I don't well, know. It could happen. It I mean, could it was happen. A, it was right? a reasonably yeah. close race, right? It's not. Yeah, it's yeah, not that this yeah. stuff is uh, out of the realm right. of possibility. Right. The idea here is that there's something out there that these aggregators aren't catch- capturing, and the market is capturing it because it's it's incentivizing people to like bring this kind of diverse knowledge to the table. But there's also the possibility they're just crazy people on the internet, you know. And um, in which case, we should take advantage of that um, to fund advantage. our children's education. You know? Yes, take advantage of the crazy people on the internet and. You're also doing a service, right? Because you're providing like a little bit of rationality. You know what I mean? Like if it was just the crazy people on the internet, like it'd be really skewed, like in the wrong direction. Like you, you are providing valuable uh, uh, insights and and sharing of information into this market. That's the way I look at it. So I say, you know, you do you, Jeff. You did a good job. I, I will like say it. it's a little bit awkward talking about it in class because, like, on the one hand, I don't want to um, advocate gambling like to my students, right? Because I certainly don't want to be responsible for their losses. Let's let's put it that way. Um, but at the same time, like they really should be betting on this stuff, you know, cause it's like, there's like free, money right. You don't want to encourage gambling. Right. Uh, but at the other, you know, on the other hand, the, the logic behind gambling and like why it may make sense for you to gamble when the spread is so large between, you know, the polls are saying, and then what the predicted people are saying. Yeah. I mean, that, that you could, you could sort of like have the students think about it in a way of like, when would it make, if you were going to bet, when would it make sense to do so? Yeah, exactly. That's a good. That's a good way of putting it. Like, I, just, so like, I, I also don't I, want to be reported to the authorities for you know. Right. Well, this is what I, I tell my students: you, you play the Powerball like when it gets over like one point seven billion, because then the expected value of your two dollar ticket is actually like two dollars and, and three cents or something like that. And so therefore, yeah, that's now, not the problem true at all. Is, that's, that's completely well, not the true. The issue, the issue, <laughs> it, it works out assuming that just one person wins. If if you have multiple people win, then the whole thing goes out the window. But that's that's a risk you have to take. You know. Yeah, that's a risk you have to take. Anyway, should we start our podcast? I thought this was. Or the did podcast. we start already? Yeah. Are we already ten minutes in? Okay, this is great. You had mentioned maybe the election is an opportunity for us to talk about the interplay of domestic politics and international politics. I don't know. You, you. This was your idea. Yeah, I guess I was anticipating like a red wave <laughs> in which <laughs> this conversation would be more interesting. Uh... Yeah. Okay. We don't have to. Well, I, I don't know what I say. Like, I was, I was about to say, I was about to say, like, you know. Well, I mean, look, the, the House and the Senate still may, may go Republican. Oh, so we like, want to do, we should do a podcast as if there is still going to be a red wave? Well, no, there doesn't need to be a red wave. Oh. The, there's not a red wave. The red ripple. <laughs> I don't know. But, but we're not, um, despite the Democrats having overperformed expectations, it seems. Historical and, and polling wise. If I had to guess right now, I would say there'll be a, a, at least a Republican House. Um, oh, yeah. And I think it's a well, you know, it's, it's still up in the air, but I, I think that, that's where it's leaning. And then for uh, for the the Senate, I mean, I think it's a toss up. What, what are you thinking for the Senate? I think it's a toss up. But I, well, I think it leans Democrat because I think that um, Georgia, it, Warnock is up by how many votes in Georgia at the moment before the, the... it's, it's going to go to the runoff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like he just, he's not going to get to 50. It's, it's like 49.4 or something. 
What does the literature say on runoff elections? Like, what what happens in those? Let's get our American politics uh, guest. Should we have a guest? Uh, we should bring Does, Jamie in. Do people is that something that people study? Like runoff elections? And, like, somebody somebody studies everything. <laughs> there's no there's no piece of the landscape that is Can not. You guys studied. do your dissertation on like the uh, the runoff elections and creating like a model of because it, it, it's when they have these third party candidates, right? Like it's kind of interesting because then you have to like figure out okay, well the people that voted for that third party person. Who are they going to vote for in the run? If they're going to vote at all, right? Who are they going to vote for? You know, I mean, my money's on Warnock in the runoff, but I think it, it, you know, right? That's what I guess. That's what I'm saying. My intuition is like, if I had to bet today and predict it, I would think in a runoff, I can't see Herschel Walker winning, and so I would say the Senate will be Democrats because if they win Georgia, that's it, right? Well, right. I mean, I think both Arizona and Nevada are going to be very close. I think I think Kelly is up by. I, we just don't know how many ballots are outstanding right now as we're we're talking about this. But um, I mean, it's going to be really tight in Arizona. But but I would rather be Kelly. Right. It's going to be really tight in Nevada. But I'd rather be the Republican. Um, right. And then and then there's Georgia, where you know it's a whole new election. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say lean very slightly lean Dem, but it's like it's going to be tight. So we could end up in a situation where, despite Democrats dramatically overperforming expectations. Right, you know, well, two still, things. Two they things. still take both. They, uh, they still, they right. It's it's possible that Republicans take the Senate. Um, that's possible. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. Can we talk about why Arizona is such a mess? Like, why why does it take Maricopa County so long to process their their ballots, and why does it seem like every election cycle there's always some issue with machines? Are they just making that up, or like what what is going on there? I don't know. I mean, I, I know that a lot of states have rules about not processing ballots before the election, right? So you right. get to the situation where everyone's like, well, why haven't you finished counting? Well, because we, you know, you, the law says we can only start counting once the polls close. Sure. And then I've right. got like, you know, all these, all ballots these millions of ballots. With. And right, I, I think right. that it's further complicated by the fact that in a lot of states, and I can't remember if Arizona is one of these, I know Nevada is, it just, the ballots just have to be postmarked by election day. So you're still yeah. getting in valid ballots on like the week, a week later that need to be counted and in a really close election you know, we only care about this because the elections are close in a lot, a lot of places that have the same problems. It doesn't matter because the elections are right. But it just seems close. to me and I understand they only count ballots like nine to five or something like that. But it seems <laughs> to me that. like, you know, in Arizona, it's there's only 68 percent of the votes have been counted, according to New York Times right now. Like yeah. and there's, it's not like there's there's, you know, 50 million votes that they're counting. There's like going to be two million or two point five million. That, that, that's a lot. But it seems like they can move along like a little more quickly than. Than they are. I don't know. It just always it strikes me as very strange that Arizona is always so slow, and there's always issues. So anyway, yeah, Kelly is up a good chunk right now. But your point is, there's 32 percent. That's going to shift. It's going to end up being very, very close. And 32 percent of the vote is out there. We don't know exactly where. Yeah, know. I think it's it's likely to move right. from here toward the Republicans, and it's the opposite in Nevada. It's going to move toward Democrats very likely, but it's not clear it will be enough. Do you like Do you like election night in America? Do you like the sort of like you know, the first the one with one percent in, you know, the <laughs> so and so is leading and then it like shifts, you know, two percent in. Do you like this sort of like horse race, like where they, they sort of the metaphor is like it's a race? Because it it strikes me as like very misleading. And, and as we saw in, in 2020, this leads people to think like there there could be problems like Trump is like, stop the count, stop the count, because right now I'm winning. And and people believe that they're like, well, wait a second. Yeah, he was winning before. How is it possible that all these was it just seems like maybe as a country. While watching the election returns is kind of fun and exciting, and and uh, there's there's drama. It might just be better for everybody if we like woke up in the morning and they were like, here with here after we counted all of them, 
100% of the vote in. Here's who won. Like, imagine a world in that, where that was the case. Would you prefer that, or do you like the Election Night in America drama? I agree with you that the, the idea that, like, we're watching them be, vote, be, be tabulated as they happen is, is very <laughs> deceptive. And, um, very and because most, most Americans have no idea how any of this works, you know, they, they draw the wrong conclusion from that. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think that there's I think transparency is good. And you would you wouldn't want a situation where it was like, OK, we told you nothing. And then three days later, he was the winner. We want the transparency of what's going on. That's helpful. But coupled with that, we'd also like people to understand what's really going on so that there's not this idea that, well, if you know, if, if only if elections used to be called the night of and now they're not called the night of and something weird is going on. And of course, elections have never been called the night of, right, is just... Well, unless it's like Alabama or like Senate or something. You know what I mean? Like they... they well, no, the elections have never been certified the night of, right? Like they're oh, called, right? right? But they're called, yeah. but but that's not, not what people are really thinking, right? They're thinking that, okay, well, yeah. it used to be we knew who was going to win that night, but only right. in elections that weren't close. And now, you know, now that the elections are close that we care about, it's, um, you know... It's it was funny, thing. last night on CNN, John King had... And as a, he was talking, he said, oh, and these are these votes are real. Like, these are real votes. And he, then he stopped himself and said, oh, wait a second. Maybe I shouldn't use that terminology. <laughs> All of us are real. <laughs> he, meant, he meant like they were realized. <laughs> like, it wasn't the poll. Like, these are like votes that are actually in and counted. But, you know, when you're talking about real versus fake, that's not good. By the way, this is great content, Jeff. This has to make the, the podcast episode. Sure. We're yeah, riffing on, on the election. This is what the students want to hear. This is what our listeners want to hear. They want our, uh, our election takes. So um, let me tell you what I was going to say yeah. this morning on this podcast. If it turned out that there was this red wave and that the Republicans had taken both the House and the Senate and with a good healthy margin in the House, like a lot of people uh, were kind of like, remember, 538 had it had it very unlikely, actually, that when you run these simulations of blah, 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 that they were going to the Republicans were going to take the House and that the Senate was going to remain Democrats. Like that was actually shockingly low in terms of like their their you know, like the X number out of 100, whatever they run, like it was only like in the low 20s, I want to say. It was much more likely in their model that the Republicans had control of the House and the Senate. So I was going to come on here today and talk about the ramifications for uh, international politics. And the, the, the most striking one for me would be the war in Ukraine, because we know that a lot of House Republicans in particular have grown a little tired, uh, to put it to put it gracefully, a little tired of U.S. sort of like unconditional blank check support for for Ukraine, and then a subset of them, the the, the more sort of you know, on the on the far right, uh, don't mind Putin, think that Russia's actually like in the in potentially even right here, uh, and not that they would support the war necessarily, but the idea that we're going to support Ukraine with all this money and arms and stuff like that would be uh, very unappealing. So I, I did think that that was going to put pressure on the Biden administration when making decisions about what to do vis-a-vis Ukraine. I actually was going to say, though, that I didn't think it was going to have that much of an effect. I think it would have an effect, not a huge effect. The bigger thing for me was if the Republicans had controlled the House and the Senate, I thought it was very likely that there would be a lot of distractions in the next year, right? So House investigations, and there might still be House investigations, but House investigations, potentially even an impeachment of Biden over what I don't know, inflation or something like that. So, like this would have been uh, a distraction that that Biden wouldn't have had, uh, uh, would not want to have to deal with, and would would likely have to deal with. But now, as we see that it's not the red wave, and it might still be the case that they end up with the Senate and the House, 
uh, I think it's a little less likely that those two things, those two ramifications of, of last night, uh, potential ramifications come, come true. So that's what I was going to say, but now I don't have to say it, even though I just did. Given the, the likelihood at this point that Republicans do take control of the House, I think we still have to grapple with this issue of, of funding for Ukraine because, mm-hmm. you know, that requires both houses of Congress both parts of Congress to approve funding. And given some of the statements by Republican leaders in you know, the last few weeks, uh, kind of casting doubt on the, the willingness of the Republican caucus to support further funding for Ukraine, I think it's worth talking about. The narrow majority that it seems likely that the Republicans will have in the House makes this maybe less of an issue because you can imagine a kind of bipartisan consensus where the, all the Democrats join, you know, some substantial portion of Republicans to support funding for, for Ukraine. So I, I think that's still still a possibility that even even if Republicans take control of the House, that might not mean cutting off the uh, funding altogether. Uh, but it's something that I, certainly Ukraine has been worried about. Uh, the European allies have been worried about. And the Biden administration, I think they're not uh, talking a lot about it, is also worried about. Um, and so there was some talk of potentially having some broader bill uh, that went through the lean duck Congress, the, the Congress that's, you know, as, as folks probably know, Congress doesn't actually turn over until January. And so um, it's still possible to pass laws under today's Congress, not the one that was elected today, but the, the old one. Um, and so you could imagine a situation where the Biden administration is able to get some legislation through that provides support for Ukraine over the next two years um, in a way to kind of counteract this this potential. I think there are plans for that uh, that are in the works, and we'll have to see whether the Biden administration still thinks that that's necessary. There are other tools that the administration has at its disposal to get funding, to get uh, support to Ukraine in different ways, um, including through allies um, and providing support for allies who then provide support for Ukraine. So it's not as if this is necessarily like a complete cutting off of support, even if that was what the um, the Republican caucus decided to do. But Right. I agree with that. Uh, it's definitely an issue that that, that everyone is concerned about, and, and Ukraine in particular, right? Because the, the durability of Western support for uh, Ukraine's fight is like the primary importance. And from the perspective of Russia, the ability to kind of drive a wedge between the Western supporters of Ukraine and Ukraine itself is the key to victory, I think, for, for Putin, right? That, that Putin feels as if if he can cut off that source of support, that it will provide an opportunity for Russia to declare some kind of victory in Ukraine. So this is this is a key thing to focus on. And it's one of those few things, I think, that does hinge on domestic support. My general view of of this whole area of the interaction between domestic politics and international relations uh, is that it's largely overblown that uh, often domestic politics doesn't have much of an effect on international relations, even if we sometimes you know want to see those kinds of connections. So there are a lot of theories of international relations that draw on what's going on domestically to explain international outcomes. The premise of many of those things is that domestic constituencies care about what happens internationally. And I think from looking at the United States, at least... There's not a lot of evidence for that assumption, this idea that the American public cares what's going on internationally, with the exception of the U.S. use of uh, the U.S. military abroad, where there's clearly a, a much stronger connection for the U.S. population. But in general, in order for you to have a mechanism where domestic politics 
affects international politics, someone at the domestic level has to be paying attention. The population has to be paying attention. And that's something that in study after study, we have a hard time finding support for. That people don't tend to vote, for example, based on the idea that this next president will have a better foreign policy or a foreign policy that they support. People vote on things that affect them directly. And usually in the United States, international relations is not one of those things. Yeah, I agree with most of what you said. I mean, I think part of part of it is is definitely that foreign policy uh, is complicated. Foreign policy to to really have sort of well formed views, you kind of have to be paying attention. Uh, there's a lot of information out there to digest, and so I think most people in America, anyway, uh, don't spend a lot of of time thinking about the intricacies of of foreign policy. In other countries, I think that they do. So right. I think like in the EU, for example, it's always striking when you go to like France or Germany, you turn on the news, like they spend a lot more time on their sort of like six o'clock news talking about what's going on in other places of the world. Here in the United States, you know, we talk about what happened next door, you know, who got who got arrested or, you know, a local crime or whatever. But over there, you know, it's it's much more um, sort of integrated into the, the international uh, politics landscape. And so people, I think, pay a little bit more more attention. I do think one area that it, it makes a difference is that Republicans for for it, this kind of ebbs and flows. But I think oftentimes there's a sense that the American electorate kind of favors one party uh, over the other when it comes to foreign policy. So in other words, I might not know a lot about any particular kind of foreign policy topic. Like if you ask me about uh, climate change legislation and the COP27 or COP28, whatever we're up to now. Uh, or the war in Ukraine, you know, I'm not going to have really well-formed views on that. But I do trust the Republicans to do better because I know that they're they're hard on X country or they're, you know, the, the Democrats are soft on this or vice versa, right? So I think sometimes at the at the sort of aggregate level, it can, it can matter and that a party can kind of be better respected for foreign policy. Uh, but I think you're right when it comes to these specific, specific issues. It's not obvious. I think actually go one step further. I mean, a lot of people would make the argument that domestic politics really doesn't even matter at the at the presidential uh, level um, in the sense that if you're if you're sort of approaching international relations from a kind of rational perspective, you would expect most leaders uh, to kind of make similar decisions given a, a given you know structural or strategic environment. Um, and there are lots of arguments, you know, obviously both ways. I was in my class the other day where I was showed the students. Um, quotes leading up to the war in Iraq, which were all about, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein's a bad guy, weapons of mass destruction, he has them, we need to get rid of them, we should have done the job in the first Gulf War, etc. Um, and one of the interesting things is that all of those quotes were actually from Al Gore, and not from uh, George W. Bush. And so some people make the argument that, you know, for example, if Al Gore was president during September 11th and had to deal with, with what George W. Bush did, that similar foreign policy decisions would be made. Now, that's a very controversial claim. But even if you take it to that extent, then you really see this sort of distinction between the domestic realm and the international realm, where like it really doesn't even matter who the domestic constituent elects as their president if the president is going to make the similar decisions uh, regardless of who they happen to be. I, of course, don't believe that as somebody who takes the first image and the individual level uh, quite seriously. I, I was about to say, this is fantastic. Yeah. This is finally you've come around to my view that well, people don't yeah. matter in international relations. What, and what I, it, I love it is is... Professor Kaplow is I want to make sure that people understand both sides, you know, and so I give I give everybody the full picture. And I, I admit there are people out there who think that individuals don't matter, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, I just don't happen to be one of those people. But I, I admit that sometimes they make good points. I mean, I think it's I think the, the little trick of, of giving you quotes that you think are coming from George W. Bush, but they're actually from Al Gore. That, that's kind of fun. 
you know. I like that. I might steal that from my class. Yeah, it's a good yeah. one. It's a good one. Yeah, I don't believe in giving both sides of the, the story. I just <laughs> no, I, like, I know you don't. I know I get, you don't. I Otherwise, give my side, and then I've seen your syllabus. If you want to find <laughs> another side, go do some research. Right? It's, what is my job? Like Google now? I'm supposed to just like tell you stuff? No. Your side is bargaining model of war. That's that's your side. That's the. Right? I mean, and, right? Why are you wasting your time with this other stuff? Should we talk about a particular individual though that I think is really important for foreign policy? Yes, please. And happened to happen to die. Uh, and I, I, I don't know uh, this person um, like individually. I never met Ash Carter, but he died. Was it last week or the week before? Uh, at sixty-eight, which uh, you know is relatively young, and I think a lot of people were were sort of caught by surprise. Of course, the former defense secretary, um, and had a long, distinguished career uh, in in U.S. politics. Did a lot of of really important things in in the sort of defense um, sphere, including. Things like, you know, women's equality and, and allowing women to serve in any you know, role in the military, transgender uh, rights in the military and so on. So that lots of lots of very important, uh, I would say, areas of progress uh, in the Pentagon and, and more generally in, um, you know, the defense sphere. But I'd just be curious to get your, your reflections on Ash Carter, if you have any, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. I, I um, so Ash Carter passed away uh, suddenly at the end of October. And um, it's just a, it was, it's a big shock. And I, I knew, um, I knew Ash well. Um, he was my professor in grad school when I was at the, at the Kennedy school um, and has been a uh, like career mentor for me, uh, for, for my, for my career. And uh, it's just a, a, a pretty shocking loss. Um, it's not something he wasn't, he wasn't ill. Uh, it's, you know, I didn't know there were, there was any issue and uh, I hadn't been in touch with him in, in some time, although I kind of always, had in the back of my mind that I would reach out, invite him down to, to William Mary to give a talk uh, um, or just uh, chat uh, because it had been a while since we caught up. So it, it's a it's a tough loss for, for me personally. I think he's worth talking about a little bit on the podcast, both because I have I have no other outlet, right, <laughs> to like speak to speak about him. So it's a chance to like get get some stuff off my chest, um, but also because I think his career path uh, is maybe of interest to our students who are thinking about ways to have impact in the world. And his career is one of, you know, just the dedication to public service of the kind that I think we frequently see in our students, right? Of people who are committed to, to giving back and to helping uh, in, in whatever way they can. But he was also just a, a brilliant guy and a, uh, an, a exceptional scholar of international affairs. And, and so I think it's like, we, we sometimes talk, I don't know if you talk about this in your class, about like this, this bridging the gap Right. This idea that there's I know I've, I've let the record show that Professor Holmes is making a, a face when I say that. And I, too, think this is a little over overplayed and uh, I'm not it's not something I'm particularly concerned about. But when we talk about it, we I think we often miss that many of the kind of giants of, of foreign policy uh, come from and have moved back and forth from academic backgrounds. And we, we don't necessarily associate them with that because they, they've had a successful career in policy. But, but I think um, Ash Carter was one of these people. And he started off uh, majoring as an undergrad in uh, medieval history and particle physics, dual major, which is a cool combo, which I recommend to whoever's willing to take that on. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He translated his interest in physics and history into... Uh, an interest in defense policy. And, and it really is kind of easy to see how these things all fit together in retrospect, w that he was a student of Cold War history. 
um, in addition to medieval history, and was uh, kind of understood the technology underlying many of these uh, kinds of weapon systems. And so he became kind of a, a an expert in the nuclear establishment, first started out looking at missiles and missile basing, and then um, later became kind of the foremost academic expert on um, nuclear command and control, and has mm -hmm. a kind of very influential book that he edited and some, made some contributions to uh, called Managing Nuclear Operations, which sits on my desk uh, to this day. Is a, this is a kind of area of academic discourse that has kind of died out post-Cold War, partly because... All of the important insights like it, it, were made by Ash Carter and the group of scholars around him and working with him. And so it, just the, the, the scholarly contributions by this guy uh, are very significant and I think often overlooked because he had a very um, influential career in public service. He started in the Clinton administration as an assistant secretary of defense, working on issues of the nuclear establishment and uh, counterproliferation. He went back to academia, founded the Preventive Defense Project with the former Defense Secretary, uh, Bill Perry, um, which has been a very influential project looking at how we can strengthen deterrence, prevent nuclear conflict. He went back into government in the Obama administration, served as uh, an undersecretary of defense, as deputy defense secretary, and then in the last couple of years of the Obama administration as secretary of defense. And then there is where, as, as you mentioned, he had a, a big impact on um, issues like women serving in the military, um, uh, transgender people serving in the military, um, but also all kinds of issues associated with the U.S. strategy toward defeating ISIS in Syria, um, a very ultimately very successful policy. And I think one of the interesting things about his career is that Ash Carter was never the the famous one there was this very funny poll that was taken of like people who worked in the def in the defense department in like year two of the ash carter uh, uh regime as under sec as, as secretary of defense and like half the people knew nothing about him right it was he was not one of these people that was uh uh that there was any kind of cult of personality around him in that sense right he was a, a really smart guy he was a demanding guy um as someone who worked for him i was kind of on one end of those demands but he wasn't a person who made it about him. It was always about um, the policy and getting the policy right. He was also willing to kind of push back against the conventional wisdom if he disagreed with it, the party wisdom, the politics around, um, around military policy. For example, he supported new nuclear weapon systems that were kind of very unpopular in the democratic foreign policy establishment. And he was, you know, uh, kind of on record as supporting those systems going forward. And so he was willing to kind of step up and, and push back on this stuff. For me, though, you know, one aspect of his career that I haven't seen talked about as much, there's been a kind of an outpouring of, of remembrances for him, um, was his role as a teacher and a mentor. And, uh, you know, this is somebody who had this, this long career in public service, was a noted scholar, uh, had a kind of great position at the at Harvard's Kennedy School doing academic work, doing track two, um, uh, diplomacy with, with other countries, um, was always a very busy person, but always made time for his students. And um, I remember I was reading, well, I was reading one of these remembrances uh, talking about uh, it, there was a reporter who had interviewed him as uh, part of a, a bunch of stories on U.S. defense policy. And he had talked about how Ash Carter had been very forthcoming with his time and been willing to, to talk with him at length. And then at the end of the interview, this was at some conference, had asked to meet the reporter's parents. 
And the reporters kind of brought his parents in and they shook their hands and talked to them about how great a job this reporter was doing. And it was it was funny to read that because it reminded me of my experience with him when uh, when I graduated from the Kennedy School and had worked for for Ash for a couple of years. He uh, wanted to meet my parents and he actually set up like a meeting like there was a time and a place I brought my parents. He just wanted to like sit them down and like you know, tell them about how good a job I had done. Um, and it was just like a, one of these things that, you know, is uh, above and beyond this idea that he like really cared about the trajectory of his students. He cared about them finding fulfilling work and interesting work. And, um, you know, and he wanted to to make them feel good. And he wanted to brag to their parents about how how great a job they did. He was willing to kind of help his students navigate careers in, in different ways. And his students have gone on to kind of populate all levels of, of the defense policy establishment and also occasionally in academia. Um, and so there's kind of a, a group of us out there who have who have worked with Ash over the years. And I think he uh, really saw it as one of the important ways he was giving back to the community, that he was making an impact in the community, even when he was out of government, when he wasn't directly um, influencing policy, he was still sending people out into this world. And I think of that sometimes uh, when I'm dealing with my own students, right? That this is one of the ways, and I don't know if you, you see it this way too, Marcus, but I feel like one of the ways that we really can have an impact on policy, uh, on the world at large, is by helping our students succeed. Um, and I feel like that example was, was set for me by Ash Carter. And I, I kind of think about everything he did to kind of help me navigate careers and, and policy and making these difficult decisions. Um, when students ask me questions about, well, what, what should I do um, going forward? And I, I, uh, I hope to sometimes channel um, all of his, his wisdom into the dealings that I have with my own students. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I never met Ash Carter. I only know... Um, him from the the public, you know, reports and and the policy. And I remember um, when I was doing research for my my uh, book, one of the chapters that we have is looking at the Reagan uh, Gorbachev interactions. And at that time in the 1980s, there was this big um, idea that the Reagan administration had about SDI, this this sort of strategic defense yep. initiative, which was like you know they were going to use missiles to you know blow up other missiles in the sky, and that was supposedly going to protect us from. Uh, nuclear war is that the Soviets ever decided to uh, attack us. And one of the, the things that you encounter uh, is that early in, in Ash Carter's career in the 1980s, he wrote basically combining the physics background that, that you were talking about with his policy understanding, this kind of report, I think it was a report, it basically said, look, this isn't going to work. <laughs> it's not going to, it's not going to do what you think you, and at the time I would imagine that was pretty uh, a bold action, right? You know, the, you know, the U S president is out there, you know, very proud of this idea, uh, and a lot of high-level policymakers, you know. Now, it, it, a lot of people, you know, thought that it was it was problematic. But here you have Ash Carter, kind of like at, in a very sort of you know theoretical physics perspective on this, saying, "No, this is this is not going to work." I mean, you can you can talk about it all you want, but it's just not going to it's not going to happen. So I, I encountered Ash Carter, you know, back then, uh, early on in his career, very early on in his career, kind of making a contribution at at that level. Um, and I am struck by what you said in, in two different ways. So one is that often it seems like oftentimes it's the people who are not the cult of personality, you know, the, the, the folks who are just sort of like showing up to work every day, doing the best that they can, not, not in it for, you know, the fame or the attention or trying to grab the spotlight or anything like that, that, that really do make 
a meaningful difference, not just in the in the policy world, but but more kind of like on individuals. You know, because like you don't if you're somebody who doesn't really care about the spotlight as much and you're not trying to um do it for the publicity, you can spend a little bit more time and energy like helping other other people, like people that are coming up and students and and so on. So I often in my own experience with with just people who are kind of behind the scenes, not that he's behind the scenes obviously, he's high profile roles, but behind the scenes compared to some uh my experience has been with folks like that that they are often the ones who are the most generous with their time and the most generous with with trying to help people because that's that's ultimately what they care about they don't care about the limelight and the and the, and the spotlight and like you i think it's it's rare for a policymaker um or the policy world to kind of like read our academic stuff and so like one of the ways that i view my my job is in teaching students and kind of making an impact by, based on not what I'm doing, but what my students end up doing. And right. so it seems like for you and Ash Carter, that was exactly, you know, the, the same type of idea where, you know, I, I'm sure everybody's reading Jeff Kaplow's uh, stuff. Don't get me wrong. But it's also likely the case that your, 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 your lasting impact will also be the students that you taught and the careers that they go on to do. Uh, and they're, they're sort of doing the work on the ground to make policy differences. This scholar practitioner model this combination of technical expertise and substantive expertise, the treatment of his students and kind of helping to prepare the next generation of policy officials. I think all of that made him a kind of unique personality in this space. Um, and and I, he'll, he'll be missed. I was at a conference last week, uh, a couple, week and a half ago, um, at which I got COVID, by the way. You know, I knew it was only Congratulations. Time. Yeah, thank Congratulations. you. My, my yep. first ever COVID experience. Very exciting. That you're aware of <laughs> that. Yeah, that I'm aware of. I'm, I'm pretty sure this was, this was no fun. Um, so I was at this conference and it was a, it was a nuclear conference, um, that happens every year and a half, a uh, year or so. And the first one of these I ever went to, I've been going to this conference for 20 years. First one of these I ever went to, uh, was I think 2003. And, um, I went there, I, I was kind of new in my role in government and, uh, I saw Ash Carter there and, um, he, you know, we, we kind of caught up for, for a couple minutes and then he, proceeded to seek out everyone else who was there from my office to um, tell them, you made a great decision uh, taking Kaplow. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you, should nice. give him more, you give him more stuff, promote that guy. Um, so I, did, I just remembered that fondly. And this was his community of, of kind of nuclear people. And so there was kind of a nice remembrance at this conference as well. But um, he, uh, he really didn't uh, make, a, make a kind of a, a lasting um, contribution beyond being Secretary of Defense and all these policy roles on the kind of people that that populate that area. Right, and he's a big NPT guy too, right? Yeah, yeah, big NPT yeah. guy, big uh, kind of counter proliferation, um, mm -hmm. all the tools at our disposal, kind of kind of person. Um, right. And in my initial work with him, he was very active in kind of the post nine eleven period in working on the issue of potential weapons of mass destruction falling into the hands of terrorists, uh, which was a big concern then and now. Um, and, uh, I remember preparing him to go meet with, he was out of government at that point, but he was still serving as kind of a back channel emissary, particularly at Indian and Pakistani leaders. Um, when this was a big issue, uh, uh immediately post nine 11, that, uh, all the nuclear material in these countries needed to be secured. And so he, I remember, uh, prepping him for a trip to meet with, uh, then Pakistani president Musharraf to try to convince him to implement some of these additional, um, controls on nuclear material to prevent them from falling into the hands of terrorists. And, um, you know, it, it struck me even then that, you know, here's a guy who's not in government. The, the party in power is not his party. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, he, was a, he was a Democrat and this was a Republican administration. And, um, but still he was being asked 
you know, by uh, by the folks uh, in charge to kind of carry the message because he was seen as kind of this this fair broker, right? He wasn't a partisan figure. He was a uh, an expert. And uh, everyone wants to wants to talk to experts about these things. What else we got? <laughs> it's tough to it, it's tough to transition from that to something else. How many people do we have leaving us voicemails? M- more than we could possibly go to. Let's go. To, let's go to the phones. Well, we we, we can't. We, we would use up all our time. If we just playing these messages. So what, what we're going to do? I'm going to filter them, and I'm telling okay. you that we have a question from Sarah in Fairfax, and okay. Sarah wants to know. Wants us to check in on the war in, in Ukraine. What's going on there and what does it mean? Well, and, and I don't know if you know this, Marcus, but today there were some announcements made by. I was just going to. You asked me a question and then you proceed to answer the own question that you, you just asked me. I just you're, didn't want to put you I, on I the gonna, spot. I don't know if you're no, watching I, the news. I was going to give you the one thing that I knew. Okay, go ahead. Give me, uh, give me the thing. In, in response. <laughs> give me the thing. Thanks for the question, Hannah. <laughs> Sarah. What was it? Sarah. Grace? Sarah. Sarah from Arlington? Fairfax. Yeah. It's all the same up there. Reston? So I can't remember. Uh, it's all the same. It's all Northern Virginia. So one of the things that we saw today was this very strange report. Actually, I have two things I want to talk about. Right. The first is that um, we saw this report today that, that the Russians um, said, they indicated rhetorically, that they were they were no longer they were pulled out of, of Kherson, I think is the way that, that it's pronounced, right? This 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 city that they had sort of you know, captured to try to defend, and, and they were, you know, uh, ongoing battles, and I think they were, you know, finding this to be somewhat difficult and laborious, and so they've indicated that they are uh, gonna gonna leave, gonna retreat, and the Ukrainian um, response, which I, which I thought was very interesting, given the Russian uh, sort of predilection over the last couple of years to sort of say things that turned out not to be true, was sort of along the lines of like, we'll believe it when we see it, right? Like you're, you're saying this thing. Um, you know, if if you do, that's great. We'll celebrate the fact that we we basically defeated you in the city and you're gone. But until we see some actual you know movement on the ground that indicates this is real, we're going to take everything that you're saying uh, with a grain of salt. And, and frankly, I think that the 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 Russians deserve that level of scrutiny given you know the statements that Putin made uh, leading up to the war and subsequently, and you know, frankly, all all over the map in terms of of different sort of rhetoric coming out of, of the Russian state. So I think that's interesting. I mean, and that does sort of uh, suggest potentially um, that uh, you know again progress is is being made. If you're if you're sort of somebody who's looking at this from the Ukrainian perspective and thinking about uh, how the war is going, I think that this is a, this is a good sign. If indeed it's true, you know, if it ends up being the case that this is just sort of a a false uh, uh, kind of deceptive act, and they're they're doing this for some strategic reason, and they're hoping that the Ukrainians, you know, somehow make changes based on this rhetoric, and you know, something like that could conceivably happen. But if it ends up being true, I do think this is a this is an important um, step for for the Ukrainians because it, it suggests not only sort of of a level of defense, which is important, but also uh, the tide might be turning a little bit, right? And it, it might be harder for Russia to continue to control some of the areas that they previously had under control. We've also seen reports of, of it being harder for Russia to uh, uh, get get soldiers into the into into Ukraine and, and um, you know through essentially their draft system and, and all kinds of different you know problems that they're having. It's it's becoming harder and harder it seems like for uh, Russia to fight this war. And so this is a broad trend we've been seeing I think uh, over the last few months where Ukraine has you know outperformed expectations. Um, as it becomes colder 
And we've talked about this before on the pod. It get you know, wintertime sort of slows things down often. Like it's harder to make progress. And so any progress that gets made kind of before that happens, I think is also a, a net positive. So I, I, I don't, I don't want to read too much into essentially what is a statement by Russia. Uh, but if it ends up being true, I think it's a very good sign for the Ukrainians. What, what is your interpretation? Yeah, so I think this is something that people have been anticipating that, when, you know, when will Russia finally make the move to, to withdraw? The surprising thing is the, the statement announcing it, right? It's not the actual withdrawal. Um, and we would kind of have expected this to be happening. The big question, I think, if, if, if this is what's going on, if Russia is implementing a phased withdrawal, the, the big question is how, how damaging will that be, right? This is like a, a very uh, fraught maneuver for Russia to try to get its troops and maybe some equipment out. Um, given the kind of geography there, if, if, if folks aren't familiar with, with what this looks like, you pull up a map. Um, the Institute for the Study of War has some good maps of the region, and you can kind of see the predicament that Russia's in here, trying to salvage as much as they can and move their troops back to more defensible positions. Ukraine will obviously try to take advantage of this, you know, militarily to the to the extent that they can, and is very likely to end up with a lot of equipment uh, that Russia is unable to to, to maneuver with them. So, um, you know, from, from Ukraine's perspective, of course, it's, it's very good news if, if Russia's withdrawing um, and Ukraine will try to make this as damaging as possible for Russia. The bigger picture here, though, is about continues to be to where are we headed? What is, how do we end this war? It's interesting to think about what the next phase of the conflict will be if, if Ukraine continues to make inroads into Russian positions. You know, is it ultimately able to contest Crimea, which... Of course, Russia took by force in uh, 2014. And if that happens, does that kind of change the calculus for, for Russia in what it's willing to do, including, you know, more extreme measures or nuclear weapons or things like that? And so as we watch the, the progress by Ukraine and, you know, I'm I'm certainly rooting for Ukraine, big, big supporter of Ukraine, um, just to, to get that out in the open. Um, I'm, I'm a big Ukraine supporter in this conflict. I hope they win. Um, but there's always, always this issue of. Uh, at, at what point does Russia, you know, change its strategy? Um, and, you know, that's the big, the big open question. We've seen some recent movement recently, um, some recent movement recently on uh, what could come from uh, maybe some negotiations. You know, there's some, some talk about uh, Russia maybe being more willing to negotiate. There was a story about the U.S. privately pushing Ukraine to say that they were open to negotiation. Just kind of a weird framing of this that the U.S. wants Ukraine to at least uh, have... Indicate. Yeah, like like give at least like some window dressing to the idea that they're willing to negotiate, partly as a way to stave off potential divisions within the alliance. I, th I think the, the assumption there is that the Western European countries in particular uh, want to see uh, the, the potential for some resolution and don't want... you And the U.S. doesn't want Ukraine to be seen as the stumbling block to a potential negotiation. This is all moot, of course, because there is no potential negotiation right now, right? There's no indication that Russia is going to be willing to agree to anything that Ukraine would be willing to agree to. So it, it doesn't really matter in terms of the, the, um, the substance of it, but it may matter in terms of the optics of it. And that's, I think, where the U.S. messaging is. What do you think about this, Marcus? You're, um, you know, an expert on diplomacy, I'm told. Do, do you... Do, do you see any – why is it that the U.S. is pushing Ukraine to kind of change its tone on, on this? The Biden administration going into the midterms was worried, you know, Republicans might have this House and the Senate. And so the time might be ripe, given that you're going to have this sort of lame duck period over the next month or two, 
to try to see if there's any potential to get something to change the frame a little bit so that we're at least opening the door to possibly uh, you, you notice all the conditional language, right? right? Like possibly uh, sit down. I think one of the fascinating things to me also, though, is that, um, you know, this is a little similar to when the North Koreans and the South Koreans and the Trump administration, you know, you talk about denuclearize the, the Korean peninsula. It's sort of like what negotiation means to both sides, I think, is quite different. So Zelensky yesterday, I think, or the day before said, like, we're open to uh, genuine peace negotiations or something like that, which I think what he means by that is like territorial integrity uh with respect to like the the things that have been taken like get restored and like all all that and kind Russia of stuff. withdraws and you know gives up yeah, yeah yeah so that's that's the idea of his negotiation i'm open to Meanwhile, that as well marcus i'm gonna go on the record right now you that like will, that. that will solve it for me russia withdraws yeah. and gives up right whereas the russians i think are probably like well you know we we went to war to show you our level of resolve and we were serious and you see that now so give me something uh in return so their idea of negotiation is like not not uh you know sort of like how like what we're going to do but like how much land we're going to be able to keep that we that we and this is kind of what happens in wars right you have these you know in, in 1967 for example like the the war you know the middle east like this is you take all this territory and then the question is like well what happens now once the war is over you have this like sort of settlement who who keeps what etc so it might be the case that, that what's happening is a little bit of rhetorical back and forth kind of setting the stage for not only just negotiations in the in the grand sense but kind of like what what both sides imply with the, the that term and and setting the stage for like what might like come down the road in terms of a negotiation and, and understanding that we're kind of like trying to get to the point where both sides see uh, that the other understands that word in the same way that I understand that word, which frankly, I think is going to require a lot of work. I think for the Biden administration and NATO and the West, getting getting Zelensky to understand how the Russian see negotiation and getting you know Putin to understand how the Ukrainian see negotiation. And it's not that they don't see it. They're, 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 they're smart people. They're, it's obvious that they, they understand what we're talking about, but understand it at a level at which they're then willing to sit down and, and potentially talk, right? Yeah, I mean, I, and this goes back to something we talked about, which is that this is not the U.S.'s deal to strike, right? And 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 the the United States, I think, can be helpful, and 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 the other allies, I think, can be helpful in creating the conditions that would be more conducive to negotiation and making particular kinds of guarantees, maybe after the fact, that would make Russia and Ukraine more comfortable with a particular settlement, but. Ultimately, uh, and I think, you know, the U.S. knows, U.S. policymakers know this, this is a Ukrainian decision as to when to negotiate and what to negotiate for and what they're willing to accept. And I don't think there's any appetite for imposing U.S. views at this point, at least, um, on on Ukraine. Part of it goes to trying to strike that balance between uh, making the right kinds of signals about uh, openness to negotiation, but also not being seen as showing any breaks in the alliance or any sense that we're pushing Ukraine towards some results that they wouldn't necessarily go for on their own. Do you think there's any sense in 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 which the retreat from Kherson is 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 it can be seen as willingness on the Russian side to potentially negotiate, or do you think it's purely? just a military setback and they, they're looking at the numbers and they're realizing we can't, we can't do this anymore. And so we're going to, we're going to leave. Like, in other words, can this, can this be read as an attempt to signal to, to Ukraine and the West that maybe they're more open 
to, to negotiations than we previously thought. Like, not that it's a conciliatory gesture, but it's sort of like one of these things that you do to to say, um, maybe we're we're changing our position, our political position a little bit here. I, I don't see it that way because this is this is a kind of military reality that that Russia is facing that this is not a tenable position in Kherson that that uh, they're going to lose more troops more equipment if they stay um, and so you know it makes sense to withdraw there is a sense in which this is surprising and that I think there have been political reasons not to retreat I think the writing has been on the wall for Kherson for quite some time. And uh, the question really was, why haven't they retreated already, saving some some um, some personnel and some some equipment for a later fight? And one reason they may not have been willing to do that is that the, the kind of political ramifications of giving up this key city mm-hmm. um, in the face of Putin's annexation of this region. Right. Um, and so it may be that Putin or those around him wanted to maintain the the idea that they were kind of holding on to this territory. So the fact that they're withdrawing may may mean that there's a recognition by Russia's leadership that their situation is worse than they maybe had previously thought. I don't know. It's, a, it's at least a possibility. On the other side of this, you know, when we talk about negotiation, it's worth mentioning that the, uh, the Ukrainian people, we've been talking about domestic politics and international um, implications of it, but the Ukrainian people may not be willing to negotiate, right, in, 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 a, in a very real sense. And this may be something we talked about before that, that, you know, it's one thing for leaders in the United States to, to say, oh, well, here's a deal that's possible. And maybe even for Ukrainian leadership to say, here's a deal that's possible. But then you've got to convince the Ukrainian people who have suffered under this conflict, right, that, uh, yeah, some trading of territory is in order here. And that may be a whole other thing that is, that is not necessarily doable um, from the perspective of Zelensky and that, that, that administration. So, um, you know, there is another player here in terms of the, the population of this country that does have a mm-hmm. say. Yeah. It is striking that the announcement came today, right? It came like after the election results in the United States were known last night. So it's it's not inconceivable. It's not inconceivable that there's some important correlation between these these two events where Putin we do know for example that the Russia admitted that they were trying to interfere with the, the, midterms, the midterm elections, right? They're on the record that oligarch, uh, I forget his name, but he, he claimed that they were doing this. So we know they were trying. Putin last night in Moscow watching CNN couldn't have been happy with the results. Mm-hmm. It's not inconceivable to me that if the Republicans had had the red wave and he thinks to himself, okay, well, wait a second, you know, things are going to change here a little bit. Maybe I can hold out on this on this announcement. But as... It became clear that the Democrats did, did a little bit better than expected. Maybe the, the interference in the election didn't go quite as planned. You know, he feels like maybe maybe this is the time uh, to do it. He's waiting to see what happened in, in uh, the midst. Now, this is a this is a, 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 a not a conspiracy theory, but that is a quite the conjecture that this had something to do with the, the events on Tuesday night in the United States. But I, I leave open the possibility that. You know, the timing is a little suspicious. I'll just say that. Yeah, I color me skeptical on that one. I, I, I feel like, uh, <laughs> you know, leave it to the Americans to make everything about them, 
right? Well, that's like true. your that's true. your that's stupid little midterm election is like driving world events, Marcus. Well, it's so stupid that they wanted to affect it. You know, they, they, that so they they're they're on the record. They said we you know we're we're trying to we're trying to affect things here. You know, I mean, like I guess it's, I guess anything's possible, but I'm uh, I, I feel like the writing has been on the wall for this one for quite some time, and you know, as a kind of military fact of life, um, that we're going to have to withdraw, um, and so you know. The, the surprise to me is the announcement. Um, and, and that that's one of the things that, you know, I think is, is the source of some of the responses from Ukraine, right? Like it would have been totally um, understandable and, and kind of expected to see Russia withdrawing. But instead to see the statement that Russia is going to withdraw, that's super weird and has everyone kind of on their toes, right? Like, what does this mean? Are we trying to be, are they trying to draw us into something? Um, yeah. Is this a feint? It seems like it's a trick. Right. Is this a trick, a, right? A, a, a so trick, like, yeah. like the fact of it isn't so surprising, but the, the statement is weird. Um, and so, and, and the, the kind of coalition around, I don't know if you're following all this like internal Russian defense stuff, but you know, there are, there are factions, right. in the Russian defense establishment and the, the people who are kind of speaking up about how good an idea this is, is like one faction. And it's kind of across from another faction that's been kind of trumpeting successes elsewhere. And so there's kind of an interesting internal Russia politics story here as well that I will not bore our listeners with. One last thing before we before we close out the podcast, uh, Jeff. Uh, there was a, a New- North Korea uh, launched a missile or a couple of missiles, I guess. Yeah. Like they they are they are want to do. Um, and the interesting thing about this latest one was that the South Koreans evidently recovered it. Yeah, like, that's great in the, in, in the ocean, right? Yep. Uh, and so as somebody, I, I don't know anything about missile technology and the specifics of all this, uh, but, but the people I, I sort of read online and, and uh, uh, trust sort of indicated this is kind of a big deal, right? Because now we have access to like with the inner part. Usually these things go boom and you don't get to see what's inside of Now we have some access to, to intelligence and things like that. So, is, so give me on a scale of one to ten, how big of a, a deal is this? Is, are the South Koreans and the United States going to get like good, you know, really useful information from this, this capture of the missile? Uh, or is this a story that the media is kind of blowing out of uh, proportion? I, I don't know if the media is blowing it out of proportion. This is not like a big story, right? So I don't know if the media is <laughs> – this, is like, this isn't like, a, you know, the red wave, right, the Republican right. wave is about to strike. This isn't, this isn't right. the media. Fair enough. Fair right. enough. There's like one guy on the internet talking about this. Um, I'm glad that you follow him on Twitter. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean this is, this is fun for, you know, people like me who follow this stuff um, because it will – uh, maybe lead to some some more clarity about um, the origin of these weapon systems and what kind of technologies underlining these systems. And we have conjecture about you know where these systems come from, and you know there's some based on some Russian designs. You know what other what other kind of foreign technology is is integrated here, and maybe maybe looking at this uh, salvaged missile will provide some insight there. I don't know how much it will really matter in terms of anything beyond our idle curiosity, because I, I feel like um, in terms of knowing the uh, performance characteristics of these systems, it's very likely that South Korea and the United States have a very good idea about um, how these systems are likely to perform kind of above and beyond the, the specifics of the origin of the technology, the kinds of things that we might be able to get at by looking at this missile wreckage. So I don't think there's probably, I don't think there's much in the way of uh of a policy upshot, like something that we would do differently, knowing right. more information about these missile systems is kind of cool to see, to see what they look like. And I'm not sure how much of that information will be released. Um, but the fact that South Korea has, has a hold of this um, means that at least there's a possibility that we'll get some more insight into, into where these systems are coming from. And what that really uh, goes to, I think the most interesting piece of it is, is uh, future iterations of the system. What, 
what are the potential improvements that North Korea could mm. make to these systems to increase their capabilities beyond what they have now. And maybe um, more insight about these missiles will kind of help us make adequate conjectures about where things are trending in, in North Korea's missile program. Okay. That's more or less what I expected you to say. And that's, that's what I got. I uh, just trying to meet expectations. Um, you know, uh, that's my goal here. And I hope that we have done that for our listeners today. This has been, we've had a long kind of hiatus. We had, um, a mm -hmm. couple of couple of weird times we were traveling or well, you, busy. You, you, you just admitted to everybody you got COVID. I can, we can't do a pod way of COVID. No, of course I'm not. I, I need all of my, uh, energy right. and, uh, right. capabilities to, just to sit here with you. It's taken, it's taken everything I have, my me. friend. It's, 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 it's very tough keeping up with me. It I takes, recognize that. It takes a lot out of me. Um, okay. yeah. So we had to, we had to take a, a, almost a month long break there. It looks like, but, um, we'll be, I'm, I'm glad that we're back and have a chance to chat and hopefully we didn't lose too many of our seven listeners. No, um, because what, what happens is when you're on Spotify, like we are, then you get a notification when a new pod pops, right? So like everybody's going to just listen to it. It's fine. Let me remind everyone listening to this that. You can listen to this podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast in any podcast app you want, as long as it's not Spotify. All the inferior podcast apps. But any other Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, I use Overcast, Pocket Cast is a good one. Whatever you, you like. You probably even download them on MP3 format and play them on your Castro. iPod. You, exactly. You can download them directly. That's weird, but you could do that. Um, the nice thing about subscribing is that you're notified when there's a new episode. And since uh, Professor Holmes and I are not always... Uh, right on time each week with our episode. Um, it's kind of nice to have that notification. If you're wondering how to do it, there's a custom URL that you can enter. Um, and the information for that is in the show notes for today. Um, so you can just put that custom URL into your podcast player of choice. It will subscribe you and then you will never miss an episode of Cheap Talk. Also, you can contribute to future episodes of Cheap Talk by asking us a question, making a comment at www.speakpipe.com slash Cheap Talk. Um, and we'll maybe get you on the air, depending on, depending on what you say. But uh, in the meantime, Mark, it was great talking to you today. It was great talking to you. And I have, a, I have an idea for season four, which is we should hire a research assistant to do detailed show notes for each of the pod episodes. And in particular, pay attention to the things that we say that are incorrect. So correcting the record ah, for everybody. That's great. That's a full-time job. Real-time fact Full-time job. Yeah. With links and everything. It, it would be, it'd be fascinating to look at that post-show. Post yeah, we should apply for some some funding to support that position. I think that's something that William I agree with that. wants to wants to fund. I'll talk to the provost. Okay, excellent. Well, um, thanks, thanks, Marcus. It was great talking to you. Thanks, everyone. We'll we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. One of my garage doors is not working. Oh, and I um, I got a ladder. I got a new ladder yesterday. Oh, you're gonna try to fix it yourself? Yeah, yeah. I can't afford. I can't afford a garage well, now door. Now you can okay. with Predict It. That's not your Predict It winnings. That's not, not enough. enough. No, garage doors, are, garage doors are, expensive. are expensive. They're very expensive. So I got a ladder. I don't. I didn't have. A, so I went to go like take apart my garage door opener because I was gonna. I watched some YouTube videos, and apparently when this stuff happens, like if you push the button, it goes up like a half inch and then stops, and that's it. Uh, that's all it'll do. And apparently this is like a known issue, and it's usually due to like uh, uh, some of the solder in the. In on the logic board in the garage door on the circuit board, uh, cracking. It's usually due to like damage over time. Vibrations of the garage door cracks the solder, and so you, you like lose the the connection. So in these YouTube videos, they show you like you take the thing out, 
you like put a little new solder in so- put your soldering you, iron no, out when you, from, when, from, when you from said where the you word solder it. you lost me a solder okay anything that requires solder or soldering i'm out so i got from I'm, I'm a little out of practice it's been years but i got us I, I picked up a soldering iron for eight dollars at home depot and i got a uh, and then i went to go do this right but i realized i cannot reach the plug for the garage door, which is plugged into the ceiling of my garage, right? That's where they like, typically are. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was, it was very yeah. high. So my my like three three step step ladder is not high enough. Standing on my car was not high enough, although I thought that was gonna work. So I actually purchased like a real my first like real person. Oh like ladder. a legit a legit ladder. A legit ladder. Yeah, it's an eighteen eighteen feet ladder. Be careful. Be careful. A lot of people fall off ladders. Exactly, right? And like I, I did not run this by my wife because I, I there's like a blanket, no no ladder is no going on the roof restriction um, that that has been imposed. That's um, probably smart. But uh, but I got the ladder. I unplugged the thing, and now all that's left is to. That was the hardest part. Now I have to just solder, resolder the. Oh, I'm sure that'll go fine. Yeah, I'm sure it'd be, be very easy to just solder some new solder onto the. <laughs> it's gonna go great. <laughs> so, Electronics check, board. I'll check back with the. I'll give you an update next time. You know what you should do is because this is. See, I find that YouTube is very biased towards the successful. Adventures post my unsuccessful. Attempt. Yeah, exactly. That's a sampling <laughs> bias, right? Everybody goes on YouTube like this looks easy, right? Because you don't see the hundreds of videos that don't get made from the people who completely like they burn down their house, they get like third degree burns on their fingers. You know, they replace. <laughs> I tried to do this with my my dryer. I think yeah. we had this discussion last That's season. Right. And, you know, it took like 14 trips to Home Depot. I spent like $300 at very, and then I couldn't get it to work. And so then I had to hire a new person to come out and do it anyway. So you don't see those videos. No one's posting their failure videos. So I, I encourage you just for transparency and to help the YouTube community, you should show your failures. That's a good idea. My, uh, actually, my father-in-law sent me like the video he used to fix his, to, to resolder his <laughs> garage door. This is like an epidemic. People doing this. <laughs> When that happens to me, if that happens to me, I'm calling good old Apple. I think the kid name is Apple uh, Garage Doors. They're yeah. the ones that installed ours. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had I had a guy uh, once fix, fix something. So I have like a name. I just, it's just, you know, no matter what it is, it's going to, he's going to charge me a lot of money to look at it. Right. And then he's going to tell me, yeah, it needs a new logic board, right. which I will install or I'll buy, or you really need a new garage door. Cause this one's like 30 years old. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and then what am I going to do? Right. And then I got to pay the, cause I already had the guy out right now. Now I got to pay the, the $5,000 or whatever it is for the new. The new garage you, you make a good point. I just, you know, uh, so if I, I, I can do this for things. the cost of a ladder and a soldering iron, then I should and the do ladder it. will come in handy later. Exactly, the ladder that. is like dual use, right? The soldering iron maybe not, but the ladder, like, like That's the, true. it's it's a small investment. And yes, I may need additional medical care because I burned myself. It also brings a little excitement into the mundane day-to-day existence. Right. What else do I have to do? Right, work exactly. on our work on our paper. That's certainly not happening. Well, that's not happening clearly. <laughs> So anyway, particle physics. 